Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, the latest on persistent inflation, evolving supply chain problems, and Congress's negotiation over the so-called anti-China bills. Joining us to discuss all of this is AAF's Douglas Holtzegen. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kyle. Happy to be here. It's been a while. How have you been? Great. Uh, life's good. Nothing really to complain about. The pandemic, uh, war in Ukraine, China's melting down. Um, you know, the world is at peace, as usual. Yeah, well, on that fun note, let's jump right <laughs> to what we want to discuss today. Let's start with the past week's big supply chain problem news that's been out. The United States baby formula shortage. Parents are understandably very worried about this and angry for that matter. What's going on here? How did we get to this point? Well, I think the real key is that uh, 98% of baby formula is uh, made in the United States by three companies. And so we've got this very, very highly concentrated, nearly exclusively domestic industry. And then uh, on top of the usual uh, disruptions we've had from COVID and things like that, we had uh, a safety uh, concern at one of the plants and they had to shut it down. So literally an automatic uh, demand supply imbalance and nowhere to go. And and that I think is the real lesson here. I, I don't want to uh, demean anyone's product, but there really isn't anything that special about US baby formula. Canadian baby formulas, pretty good. German baby formula, pretty good. And we don't permit importation of those products. Mm. Now, there's a, a legitimate place for the FDA to check and make sure that these products are safe and that, uh, you know, they're acceptable for American consumers. But it seems Im- really implausible that they wouldn't be. And that the real mistake here was to put ourselves in a position where we had no alternatives. Not having enough supply, not having enough competitors always leads to bad outcomes. And that's what we've got here. And and we're seeing, you know, the, the federal government trying to quickly arrange for, for some, some importation. But the mistake was not to have it in general. And so I think opening this this market up and having more competition would solve a lot of problems in the near term and the long term. Yeah, I think I read in my uh, my usual morning news brief that the U.S. is working towards allowing some of those imports and then also trying to fix some of the, the issues here at home with those three companies you mentioned. You know, in the end, is it the government's role to, you know, avoid shortages of must-have products in the future like this? And if so, how does it do it? I, I, I don't think it's the government's job. I mean, there's a real good business incentive to avoid this, it's, this is bad for their business to not be able to fill their contracts to the, the people who, who bought from them. And there's a real incentive for the other companies to raise their production and, and, and steal this market share. And so there are, there are good dynamics in play here that will solve this problem. There's no question about that. Will they solve it overnight? No. There's also a lesson here. I, I think it's basically true that the single largest source of monopoly power in the US economy is the federal government. This is a tribute to the protections they receive through the FDA in particular, about com- competition from other countries and other uh, companies' baby formula. And so, you know, if you protect something, you get higher prices and less production and and less uh, good customer service. Firms aren't as nimble. All of those things improve when you, when they, when you have a competitor who's trying to do that. So I, I think this is not that complicated in the long run, but overnight, we're now in this position. Right. So in order to avoid these shortages in the future, do you think it would be you know, beneficial not just to have a temporary 
allowance of imports, but to permanently allow like Canada and Germany to bring them in as long as they meet our standards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they're safe enough to import in a crisis, why aren't they safe enough to import when it's not a crisis? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Intuitively, that just makes sense to me, but I don't know. <laughs> worth the question, I guess. <laughs> absolutely. Sticking with uh, supply chain issues, let's talk about China. Uh, China's zero COVID policies continue to force parts of the country into lockdown. This has obvious impacts on the global economy and having some immediate impacts on our economic recovery. But what can we expect over the next few weeks and months as this works through the system? Well, the Chinese are uh, in the position of using quarantines, extreme uh, quarantine measures to control the spread of the virus because they don't have an effective vaccine. Uh, the Sinovax was 50, maybe 60% effective against the original uh, coronavirus uh, uh, with the mutation to Omicron. It's, it's far less effective, maybe 20, 30%. So they don't really have any other way to, to control the spread of the virus. Uh, we know that lockdowns have an enormous social and, and especially economic consequence. Uh, we've experienced that in the US. And so a direct impact of these lockdowns will be more supply chain difficulties for those firms affected by the areas they get locked down. The larger concern is that the, the Chinese economy will slow as a result of this, and it is slowing. And as a, a very important engine of global economic growth, global growth will slow. When the globe slows down, the U.S. is not immune to that. Um, other countries will buy fewer of our exports and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll feel the impact of that as well. So. Everything else being the same, the China sort of pandemic wave right now is going to produce more supply chain problems with those higher cost pressures in the U.S. and slower economic growth. That's the, the, the evil combination of stagflation that no one likes to hear about. But, but that's what's going on in China. And it's, it is, to me, a fairly substantial risk to the outlook. Interesting. Something we'll have to continue to keep an eye on as COVID waves continue to happen throughout the year. On that note, let's turn to inflation. I mean, that's a big part of all this. Rising prices continue to put pressure on everyone's budgets from you know, households to businesses. Even the government has exposure on inflation. What did the latest report tell us about inflation? So the most recent uh, consumer price inflation report uh, showed that in uh, April, inflation was 8.3% year over year. And you heard a, a little muted clapping because it had been 8.5% in March. So this represented a decrease. We're still at 40-year highs. And um, inside the report, I think the news is actually a little worse than the headline would suggest. If you look at the bundle that is food, energy, and shelter, the, the thing I think of as the necessities, over 50% of the typical household budget, that inflation rate is 10% year over year. That's very high. And... That's been the problem during the, the Biden tenure. Since uh, January of 2021, the beginning of his presidency, that bundle, the typical inflation rate has been 19.8%. People are feeling that on the ground, and that's the source of the economic distress. That's the source of the, the political heat. Household budgets do not go up 19% in that period of time. I mean, it's just not possible. Uh, no. So that's that's a lot of pressure on, the, on these budgets. And, you know, the, the single biggest item in there is shelter. Uh, shelter is a third of the budget, and it's now running at 5.1%, and it's, it's continued to rise. So there was no no evidence in the, the most recent report that, that shelter inflation is slowing down. We've seen the housing market be red hot. Uh, rental market was comparably red hot. 
the Fed is 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 you know uh, has announced its plans to take on uh, the inflation problem, and the housing market will be a big conduit for the impact of Fed interest rate hikes on the economy. Um, we've already seen mortgage rates go up and the demand for mortgages go down. Mortgage applications are down sharply. What happens is you make it less attractive to buy a house. And so that makes it less attractive for a builder to build a house, which makes it less necessary that you have the furnace and the dishwasher and the paving of the driveway and all things that come with the new house. And that feeds into the whole economy and just slows down the demand for, for a broad swath of, of goods uh, and services. That That's how the Fed policy works. And it, it will do that again. So expect that the housing market will cool off. That's that's part of the intent. But remember, we're starting this episode with a record low supply. Inventories are at an all-time low. And the incentive we're trying to send is don't build more houses. So uh, this is going to continue to be a difficult area for a while. Speaking of the Fed, former Fed chair Ben Bernanke made comments this week where he warned that the U.S. economy may face a period of stagflation, um, a slowing economy, a bump in unemployment, but still high inflation. Do you think there's a significant risk of stagflation? I, I think he was very careful in what he said, and I think the the, the vast readership has been less careful in how they interpreted it. So he, here's what he was very careful to say. As the Fed raises rates, it will slow the growth in demand and slow the growth in the economy. And it, but it will take a long time for inflation to, to disappear, dissipate down to the 2% target. So in the intervening period, you will have continued high inflation as the economy slows. And that's what we used to call stagflation. So he, he's just outlining what the Fed's doing and how it's going to work. But the label stagflation gets attached to it and it gets a lot of attention. But he's not wrong. In the best scenario, that's what the Fed will do. In the the scarier scenario, they will push too hard or something will happen that they can't anticipate and the economy will go into a recession as the mechanism for bringing inflation down. And that's negative growth in inflation is way worse than slow positive growth in inflation. So yeah. you sort of you, you want to pray for the slow positive growth scenario. Interesting. Finally, let's discuss the latest on Congress's conference negotiation on the so-called anti-China bills, the House's American Competes Act and the Senate's USICA bill. Let's start with the basic background, because I don't know if a lot of our listeners have been uh, paying attention to it as recently as we might have. What are these bills trying to accomplish and what are the major differences the countries are trying to iron out here? So long ago and far away, these two bills began with the notion that we needed to have more semiconductor production in the United States because uh, the disruption in, in global semiconductor production had left us without the ability to make enough cars, for example. And, and suddenly used cars were, were more valuable than the new versions of the same model and things like that. So, and, and that idea, whatever its merits, um, was the, the focus of a $16 billion initial bill um, in the Senate. And then the idea, was to marry that with something that was called the Endless Frontiers Bill, which was a U.S. competing with China on uh, innovation for the next generation of uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and, and a variety of other sort of uh, areas, um, quantum computing. So that got rolled in. And now these trade provisions have been rolled in, and it has, it has grown from the $16 billion focused idea to 
the House version, $400 billion and everything under the sun. The largest conference committee I think I've ever heard of or seen in my in my time. Uh, everybody, I mean, it, it's a it's wild. And so, I, you know, among the things that are in there that that I, I think are important are some trade provisions. And we've got a, uh, a paper out by Tori and Tom that, that looks at the and compares and contrasts the two bills on the trade front. There are um, there are things like um, Section three hundred one exclusions, right? That's a Section 301 is the the official section under which the China tariffs were levied by President Trump. There's a process for applying for exclusions from those so that you wouldn't have tariff on particular imports. That's in the, the Senate bill. It's not in the House bill. And so that's probably a good idea to have a, a good exclusion process. And, um, you know, their take on this is that should the conference should be thinking about taking the Senate version of that and keeping it, put that in. Uh, there are other things in there that are that are sort of traditional trade titles. So this is sort of how this, these bills grow, like something that might normally be a standalone trade bill, go through in a non-controversial fashion. You just tack it onto this and, and hope it goes. So both bills have uh, the generalized system of preferences, which is sort of how we open up uh, the U.S. market to people who are have most favored nation status and, and trade with us on, on fair terms. There's a miscellaneous tariff bill. So I'll uh, Every year, Congress does uh, an MTB. This is to get rid of tariffs on those products for which there is no domestic supply. So you go through and, and sort of get rid of those. That that makes uh, perfect sense to do that. And then there's um, some language in there on online country of origin labeling, right? And so we we have country of origin labeling on on the the traditional trade. Now we have online goods and services. How are we going to identify them? Make sure that's not too onerous and it's not really a disguised way to exclude some products, you know. So, so there's some things in there that they think are good, and there there are also some things out in there that um, are terrible. Um, so, uh, the House has uh, a, a provision for essentially the screening by a new entity of outbound investment from the United States. We already have the the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, so-called CFIUS, which when uh, money from another country comes in to buy a U.S. company or to um, you know, sort of purchase um, and build something here. They check it for national security implications, whether it's a legitimate company, whether it's it's going to in any way impede our national security. This would do a parallel review of every dollar headed out of the U.S. There's never been, to my knowledge, anybody who said this is a problem, but suddenly they're inventing this. We already have an export controls regime for sensitive technologies that we don't want to send to other countries. So if we have something that's that's cutting edge, used for na national security purposes, we're not going to just let uh, someone sell it to, uh, around the globe. So that's already in place. So this is sort of a uh, a really big interference in capital flows, you, our own money, to solve a, a problem that doesn't seemingly exist. And so that's in the House version. They're saying, well, we should take the Senate version, which doesn't have it. <laughs> so, so, you know. Um, so it's just going through this and, and just looking side by side, where are we on, on these different things? The same can be said true for research dollars, which are in there. Semiconductor dollars which are now up to $52 billion. Remember, it was a $16 billion product problem at the beginning. You know, this thing's just become this enormous uh, initiative. Yeah, it seems like it's become like one of those Christmas tree bills where you just get everything in there as you want. Christmas tree, Kyle. I think it's a very big tree. I don't know what it is. <laughs> or Christmas trees that we see, you know, like that we light up every this year. 
Rockefeller Center Christmas trade. That, that's yeah, what this exactly. is. <laughs> and the AF has spent a good deal of time wading through these massive bills. I mean, you mentioned Corey and Tom Lee's bill that I think out today, and we'll, of course, include a link to that. And I think it does a pretty interesting job of categorizing the bill's trade provisions into the good, the bad, and even the ugly buckets of yeah. this. So I'm sure there's a lot more than what you highlighted in there, but it's a good it's a paper. I cannot cram all of their knowledge into my small brain. Uh, I encourage you to take a look at the paper. Yeah, that's all I had for today. Thanks for breaking all that down for us. There's a lot happening out there and hopefully some good news in one of these areas along the way. Hope springs eternal and I remain optimistic. So, yeah. Well, the good news I'm hoping for tonight is, of course, a Celtics win. So I know you'll join me in that. I, I will. Um, I've got the Celtics beating the Heat in my internal bracket and we'll see how that plays out. First time in sports that Doug and I have agreed. There's the good news we were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll have a good rest of your day, Doug. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.